Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Today, we're closing out Black History Month by celebrating one of my favorite artists and former classmates, Christian McBride. It was our first episode ever, so I'm excited for you to hear it in case you missed it the first time. And starting next Tuesday, I'll be back with brand new episodes featuring Barbara Hannigan, Bella Fleck, Paul Watkins, Lawrence Brownlee, Kenji Lopez-Alt, and so many more. Make sure you're following the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a new episode. Christian McBride is an eight-time Grammy Award-winning bassist and artistic director of the Newport Jazz Festival. He honed his skills on the bandstand at an early age by working with jazz legends. Now, after 30 years of being a band leader himself, he knows a thing or two about nurturing promising newcomers. I don't expect anybody to be perfect. There's no such thing. Everyone's going to make a wrong musical choice every now and then, but you stick with them. You give them that opportunity to keep walking in those landmines, and eventually they will walk tall and say, Hey, I got this. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I'm sure you don't know this, but we started Juilliard the same year. We were classmates. Are you kidding me? See, I, did, I only stayed a year, so... I know, I know. <laughs> and that's the thing. For me, going to Juilliard felt like a really safe place. I knew I was going to be there at least for four years. Right. So I had plenty of time to practice and get ready to face the competition. But you left after just one year and started working right away. Can you talk to me about how Bobby Watson the famous saxophonist who played with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, how he lured you away 
from your formal education? <laughs> yeah, uh, he just wound up at Juilliard one day, and you remember how difficult it was and still is to get in the building if you weren't a student or a teacher. He somehow finagled his way past security, and I remember going to a couple of classes one day, and we were maybe two weeks into the uh, school year. I barely know my way around the building, and uh, someone said, Christian, some strange man came by the classroom and he was looking for you. And, uh, of course, that's not a, a great thing to hear when you're <laughs> a new student in New York and you don't know that many people yet. And uh, I said, well, can you describe him? They said, well, he, he was a tall black man and 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 he had a hat on. And I said, well, Jesus, can someone at least get the man's name? Later that day, I went to lunch, and there was Bobby Watson sitting in the cafeteria reading the newspaper. And I said, oh, you're the strange man everyone's been talking about all day. <laughs> so... Um, he was very quick and very curt. He said, uh, I'm playing at Birdland for two nights, and I want you to play with me. And Victor Lewis is playing drums, and James Williams is playing piano. Now, mind you, probably earlier that day, I had been listening to some music that the three of them had played on together and thinking, man, I sure would love to play with them one day. Right. And um, here I am about to make my first official gig in New York with Bobby Watson, James Williams, and Victor Lewis. When you attended Juilliard, did you think that you'd initially stay there and study classical bass for four years? Well, I guess after, what's it been, 33 years now? I mean, I, I can be honest. My brain wanted to stay for four years. But in my heart, I was hoping that someone like Bobby Watson or Freddie Hubbard or somebody I looked up to would give me an opportunity to be in their band. I didn't think it would happen that quickly, but it did. And of course, this is before Juilliard has its jazz right. program. So when you enroll, you're studying in a classical institution. Yes. Did your classical studies inform your jazz musicianship? For whatever reasons, just maybe three or four nights ago, I was listening to a recording I did with Benny Green back in 1991, and I'm really surprised how much Arco I played on that recording. Arco is a particular type of bow stroke? No, it's, it just means playing with the bow, period. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, a lot of jazz bass players are not known to do that. There used to be this running joke in the jazz world that the only time you hear a bass player play with the bow is on the last chord of a ballad, you know. But between my high school years playing in the Temple University Chamber Orchestra, the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra, and then, of course, going to Juilliard, my classical chops were much better then than they are now. So, yes, certainly from a technique standpoint, it really informed my jazz playing a lot. It's funny that you mentioned your Philadelphia Youth Orchestra because that's another thing that we have in common. Actually, you have in common with my wife. She played in that orchestra. She talks about this tour that you guys did of East and West Germany. Yes. With that orchestra. What do you remember from that tour? <laughs> well, what I remember from that tour is that 
I couldn't really have as much fun as the other orchestra members because my mother was one of the chaperones. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things. My wife said that she went to the Hofborough house and was drinking beer and having a great time. Oh, Uh, yeah. But you couldn't partake in that? No, man. I had to... uh, be on an up and up that that entire two week tour three week tour I can't remember what it was but you know I just remember seeing just how gray it was and how the minute you go across Checkpoint Charlie and you're back in West Berlin it was just like a completely different civilization and I also remember quite vividly not understanding why that wall was built and I remember being told like seven or eight times and I still didn't get it Well, it's a a lot to take in as a high school student. Once you left your formal education, you were just, what, 17, 18 years old. I'm assuming you still had a lot to learn. What was your education like once you left school? Oh, I still have a lot to learn. I think we're all perpetual students. Our antenna stays up all the time. And we're now at that point in our lives where... We're not exactly elders, but we certainly are not rookies. And so it's this balance of teaching people in their teens and their early 20s who believe that they have the key to life. (laughs) And uh, we have to balance it to tell them that we've been where you are before, so you don't have the key to life. But show us what you got. Convince us, you know. After I left Juilliard, I say that I went to the University of the Road, learning from these these great jazz legends, going to places like Bradley's and the Village Vanguard and the Village Gate, and um, just really jumping into the deep end of the pool. And where did the greatest lessons that you learned in those early years come from? Most of the old school musicians, they didn't pull punches. They gave you inspiration in some very harsh ways. (laughs) But in retrospect, I didn't mind it. I liked the fact that sometimes I would play a gig and some older musician would be in the audience with a cognac and he would shout, you know, "Uh uh-uh, wrong changes, wrong changes. Or that was okay, but you're Russian. Relax, you know. They didn't pull punches. They didn't tell you how great you sounded all the time. Their ways of getting you to learn was just the opposite. Somebody could give you a backhanded compliment like, uh, well, I knew that tune when I was 18. I don't know why you don't know it. (laughs) You know, so I was like, okay, well, I guess I better learn the song then, as opposed to getting offended. Because what I wanted more than anything else was the respect of all of those jazz musicians that I admired so much. Right. So from age 17 to 22, you're primarily playing with older, established powerhouse musicians like Freddie Hubbard, Milt Jackson, J.J. Johnson, Hank Jones. Was it possible to play with these people and not feel like a kid? (laughs) No. no. Uh, I felt like a kid. I knew I was a kid. I probably played like a kid. But that's why I'm so, so grateful to all of those musicians for giving me an opportunity. They obviously heard something. They thought I had some promise, and and they stuck with me. And that's why I'm so fiercely dedicated to doing the same thing with younger musicians I see coming up now. I don't expect anybody to be perfect. There's no such thing. 
everybody's going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to make a wrong musical choice every now and then, particularly if you're talking about improvisational music. They're going to do something that might not fit what you're thinking. And you'll have to pull them aside and say, hey, try something else. But you stick with them and you give them that opportunity to keep walking in those landmines. And eventually they will walk tall and say, hey, I got this. And in navigating that learning curve, when you started playing, you said that there was at one point some friction on the bandstand. (laughs) before getting really settled in. Yeah, well, Revisionist History says that I came to New York at age 17 and started gigging right away, and, you know, what a cakewalk you had as a young musician. Well, that's what and, that's what Wikipedia says, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but uh, no one ever stops to think that at some point, maybe someone said, McBride, you got a lot to work on because it ain't really happening yet. And that happened to me a lot a lot. My career is a result of me surviving mistakes. (laughs) That very, very first gig with Bobby Watson at Birdland in September of 1989, uh, I knew Bobby Watson's music well. And we had an incredible rehearsal at the club that afternoon. Ran through a few songs and he seemed impressed that I knew a lot of his music. And then once the gig started, um, we played the first song, and I got the sense that Bobby wasn't quite happy about something. And he stood behind me at one point during the gig, and he's like, uh, "Hey, man, it's dragging," you know. And, and and I was a little lost. I thought, "Really? It doesn't feel like it's dragging," but you know, I'm 17. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk back to him. So I thought, okay, well. Let me play a little more on top, get on top of the beat. And no matter how on top of the beat I got, he was saying it was either not in the pocket or or it was dragging. And uh, I was confused. Now, along with this, this was traumatic for a 17-year-old playing his first gig in New York with three musicians he admires and having been told multiple times that he's dragging. The tradition of deciphering a song during someone's cadenza. I was not familiar with that. No one in Philadelphia ever did that. You know, anytime a song ended, that band leader would turn to the band and say, hey, the next song we're going to play is blank. Or we had that discussion before we get on stage. I did not know it was common practice that sometimes you don't call a song at all You just start playing, and you're supposed to decipher what song is being played. And so Bobby starts taking the saxophone solo, and if I were a cartoon, you could have just seen, like, question marks over my head. Like, what is he playing? I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize the melodic shape of it. I didn't recognize the harmonic shape of it. Now I'm getting icicles on my feet because obviously this is something I'm supposed to know. And so he finally lifts his horn up and gives the downbeat. And I have no idea what song we're playing. And I just start playing wrong notes every two beats. I'm looking at James Williams with this terror-stricken SOS look on my face. You know, That's a, that's a nightmare. You're in a club with people but five <laughs> feet from you, so you have to look cool, too. Oh, exactly right. 
exactly right. You can't give it away. You can't give away your, your terror and your panic. <laughs> that sounds like a complete nightmare. <laughs> oh, it's a nightmare. So now Bobby was already a little critical because of my beat placement. Now I don't know what song we're playing, so I'm playing all the wrong changes. So now he's really frustrated. <laughs> and I'm looking at James Williams like, help, help. Thank God James Williams was such a nice man. Every now and then he would play the bass note in his left hand to navigate me a little bit. So uh, I plowed my way through this song, playing all the wrong changes, not being on top of the beat like Bobby wanted. So I was convinced that this would be a one and done. I failed miserably. Hopefully Bobby will give me another shot. Now the gig was for two nights, so I knew I at least had one more night to redeem myself. And it was a little better the next night, but not much. <laughs> well, I'm glad you figured that out. But it was it was not only that case of not being able to decipher the tune, but just where you were in the pulse, in the beat right. that he felt like you were either behind or, or ahead. Right. Uh, right. In my job, I don't play in the rhythm section as a trumpet player, but the closest I come to that is when we play Mozart operas. Mm -hmm. And when it's, when it's Mozart, it's me and the timpani. And we right. sit side by side and we were doing the Marriage of Figaro, which starts with a really fast overture, oh, yeah. right? Yep. And we were playing it with this conductor and the way he was conducting, I was right on top of his beat. I just felt like the more I played on top of the beat, the more he'd look over at me. <laughs> and I thought through my ego, I was like, oh, he's really into it. So then I played <laughs> more on top of the beat. We end the act. And the first act is like an hour and a half, something like that. And he makes a beeline straight to me. And I'm still thinking, man, he really loves my playing. He's, He's going like, to come yeah. over, like, give me a big hug. <laughs> and his eyes were really wide. And he says, why are you playing so on top of the beat? You're like almost a beat ahead of me. So I guess that, that's just a really green thing to do. Um, it happens. Yeah, I guess so. It I happens. Guess so. Finding that inner pulse is one yeah. thing when you're alone. But what I'm always amazed at is when you have a rhythm section, two or three people who find that pulse mm -hmm. instantaneously requires a lot of intuition. Yes. And this kind of magical thing happens right away in the first bar. That's right. Can you dissect that moment when a tune starts and a group falls into a pocket together? How does that happen? Well, I think it happens a number of different ways. The more you play with the same musicians, you become comfortable and you kind of know where it's going to go. So familiarity always helps. When you're playing in a rhythm section that you're not used to playing with, now you have to use some intuition, some telepathy, and most you got to do a lot of listening, a lot of listening, particularly with the bass and the drums. Within those first four beats, both the drummer and the bass player are thinking, okay, who's going to be the leader here? Who has the stronger pulse? And honestly, I can't think of too many situations where the bass player wins that, <laughs> that fight. The drums are obviously a very dominant instrument. You will have to go with the drummer. You have to make a couple of quick choices. Sometimes they will work, sometimes they will not. But the goal is for it to feel good. So if you have to relinquish 
what you think might be your beat to get with the drummer so it can come to a happy medium, to me, that's a win-win. This supportive musical role that essentially sets up plays for other people to shine. I mean, as a bass player, that's kind of part of your DNA. Do you think that is reflected in your personality? Can you be a good bass player if you're a selfish person? (laughs) I suppose there have been anomalies in the sense that, uh, you know, you have some bass players with dominant personalities who made it just fine. You know, Charles Mingus comes to mind. Jaco Pastorius comes to mind. These are bass players who would stand down to nothing or no one. You know, they don't fit the general bass player psychoanalysis thing. But I think generally speaking, most bass players tend to understand that our job is to hold the band together, not to be the person that gets the spotlight put on them. Right. The bass itself is such a resonant instrument. And when you play it, your stance is you're you're hugging that instrument. It's a part of you. Is there a physical sensation to playing the bass? Oh, big time. You feel it in your body, you feel it on your body. You know, you feel that wood vibrating on your chest and on your and on your stomach. That's why I really enjoy playing the bass with as little amplification as possible. Um, because I really love feeling the wood vibrate. If you play too soft, you can't feel that wood vibrating. And if you play too hard, it's not a good feeling because you're physically overloading the instrument. So I love playing an instrument where I'm challenged to find the right physical input to get the best sound out of the Mm -hmm. instrument. You've played and recorded with literally hundreds of musicians across different genres of music. Not many musicians can say that they've collaborated and recorded with artists from Sting to Chick Corea, from Shaka Khan to Milt Jackson. How are you so able to navigate these different styles of music successfully? Well, you know, man, at the core of my being, I'm a professional musician who wants to work. So when somebody calls me for the gig, my first question is, what is the gig? So I can figure it out. My first reaction is never, well, I'm an artist. How am I going to be able to express myself in this situation? My first reaction is, what's the gig? You know, what role do I need to play? And that's just uh, the professional working musician in us. So if I get called for a bluegrass gig, hey, let me put my bluegrass hat on. If I'm getting called for a pop gig, let me put my pop gig hat on. I think it was more of a mind thing more than a uh, actual musical ability type of a thing to make all of those different things work. I, I think, again, it probably speaks to how you are as a person. Well, thank you. You're the artistic director of places like the Newport Jazz Festival and the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. What are the biggest challenges of presenting jazz versus playing jazz? Selling tickets. (laughs) That's been the biggest challenge in jazz for at least half a century now, you know. And I don't think it's that much different in the classical music world. We spend all of our time looking for funds, finding angel donors. I think that's the story of uh, 
a lot of creative music in in our country. So probably the biggest challenge I can say being an artistic director is finding that balance between creativity, artistry, and commercialism, because you can't just book who you like. It's disappointing sometimes to find out how unwilling some people are to bend to learning about artists that they don't know or listening to styles of music that they're not that familiar with or think they don't like. But following the template of George Ween, who is the uh, co-founder of the Newport Jazz Festival, I always admired the fact that he never booked the festival based simply on what he liked. He always paid attention to current trends in jazz, and he booked accordingly. And that's what I try to do. In 2022, I find it more and more difficult to find younger musicians who like playing acoustic swinging jazz with commercial viability. And that was the thing that was good about the Young Lions movement. A lot of people argue and saying that wasn't great artistically, but in the 80s and the early 90s when Winton and Branford and Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison and later on Roy Hargrove, myself, Joshua Redman, we were playing music that a lot of critics weren't happy with because it was, it was retread. Post-bop from the 50s is not very imaginative. It's not very creative. But I'll tell you what, a whole generation of younger people who otherwise could care less about jazz now knew and became curious about who Dizzy Gillespie was, who Thelonious Monk was, who Sarah Vaughn was. And the so-called uncreative music that we were making really did a good thing for the business of jazz. And in 2022, that doesn't exist really anymore. I've heard you say that jazz musicians and society in general elevates dead musicians. You could never be Dizzy Gillespie. That's like right. being like Mozart or Beethoven. That's right. Whereas you say that contemporary people can be that elevated level of genius, and you should recognize that. Yes. I find it somewhat disappointing that subconsciously no one born after 1960 can be considered great. I made this really depressing joke, but I mean, I, I kind of meant it. At least I meant it halfway, like... uh Death is a really great career booster in the jazz world. That's when you're guaranteed to start selling some product. <laughs> I think that what happened in the 40s and the 50s was so great in jazz that we've made such heroes out of the Miles Davises and the Dizzy Gillespies and the Thelonious Monks and the Charlie Parkers. They're such deities at this point, like Roy Hargrove, great, nah, Nicholas Payton, great, nah. Chris Potter, are you kidding me? Great, nah. He's just finding his voice. You know, man's in his mid-50s. <laughs> you know, come on. No, Chris Potter is great. Roy Hargrove was great. So um, I'm sorry we were born so late, but that doesn't mean we, we can't be great at what we do. You come from a very musical family. It seems like you were predestined to become a bassist. Can you talk about how your family shaped your musicianship? Well, I was fortunate to grow up in a family full of musicians. My father, Lee Smith, is a professional bassist. My great uncle, 
Howard Cooper. He's retired now. He doesn't play professionally anymore, but he was a bassist. And um, my uncle was the head of promotions and advertising at WHAT Radio in Philly. So I was just surrounded by music all the time. So if I didn't become a professional musician, I'm sure I would have had a job in the music business. You know, going to live shows, seeing my father play with Mongo Santa Maria a lot as a kid, going to a lot of R&B and gospel shows with my uncle and my mom, uh, that that shaped me. And you say that you backed into jazz from funk. Yeah. Growing up, I heard jazz, but, you know, that's not really the music of a six or seven or eight-year-old I didn't dislike it, but that wasn't the music that I would gravitate toward. I was total soul R&B funk guy. And I, I got to tell you a funny story. My whole family still laughs at this to this day. My grandfather ordered this composer's record set. It was like a 12 record set. The best of Beethoven, Bach, Chopin, all the composers. But the company that made this box set was Funk and Wagnalls. And so I remember as a kid seeing one of the album jackets and it said Funk, Funk and Wagnalls. <laughs> and so I remember looking at, like, picking up, like, Beethoven Volume 2, whatever it was. And I thought, well, it says Funk. It doesn't look funky, but it says Funk. So let me put it on. <laughs> <laughs> and what'd you think? I was like, no, this is not funk. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my uh, James Brown records, you know. But anyhow, once I got to middle school and had to start playing an instrument in the school orchestra, my great uncle came into the picture and said, uh, well, now that you're playing the double bass, it's time to turn you on to the cats. And so um, he brought me over to his apartment one day and he just, uh, he gave me a crash course in the history of jazz bass. And uh, he played everything for me that day. Ray Brown, Ron Carter, Paul Chambers, Charles Mingus, Oscar Pettiford, Charlie Hayden, Scott LaFaro, uh, Jimmy Blanton. I mean, it was really great. And How, how many hours were you listening for? Uh, about a good six or seven hours. My great uncle, he is the coolest man in the world because, you know, I was 11 years old at that time. And, like, what 11-year-old really wants to sit around listening to jazz albums all day long, right? Especially on a Saturday. That's the day you're supposed to watch cartoons, you know. <laughs> but my great uncle is just the coolest guy in the world because uh, he's a very animated man. He got such joy in listening to music. I think his enthusiasm really rubbed off on me. Mm. And I thought, well, if jazz makes him this cool, I want to be cool too. And that was at age 11. Yeah. Yep. Wow. You've talked about James Brown and how he hooked you into music and how that formed a relationship throughout your career and to the end of his lifetime. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what James Brown has meant to you throughout your career? I tried to trace it and figure out what it was about James Brown that uh, really got me so deeply. I think the first music that I really connected with was the music of Motown. Our household was a Motown household. Even though, we, even though I grew up in Philadelphia, 
our household leaned a little more towards the Temptations, uh, Diana Ross and the Supreme, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Gladys Knight and the Pips. And the first time I saw James Brown perform on television, I'd never in my life seen anybody move like that. It was like watching the Tasmanian devil in real life. You know, it's <laughs> like he was a blur. He's doing all these spins and splits and he's screaming. It's like, this is a wild man. But the band was also very funky. And uh, I'd just never seen anything like that in my life. So my uncle, he got me deep into his James Brown collection because uh, I didn't know that he was also a James Brown super fan. Every time James Brown came to town, we were always there for all of the 80s. Every time James Brown came anywhere within the 50-mile radius of Philly, we were always there. But I try to go back and remember what it was about James Brown's music that really got so deep inside of me. And I, I realized that it was this. I feel like James Brown's music gave me a force field it put like this impenetrable force field around me because, see, I got bullied a lot and I got teased a lot when I was a kid because I was always bigger than most kids and, you know, I had these ginormous teeth and then I liked old music. So here I am in elementary school, everybody else is talking about Rick James and Prince and I'm talking about James Brown and The Temptations. And like, man, that's, you know, that's, my mom listens to that, man. Why are you listening to that old stuff? With James Brown, he was my version of Popeye spinach. Popeye would eat that spinach and then he would buck up and he could beat anybody up. Now, I never tried to beat anybody up, but something about James Brown's music just made me feel strong, powerful, safe, and it just felt protective. Not to mention it was funky and... I could play it on the bass. <laughs> right. And you finally got a chance to play with him and to collaborate with him. What did that mean to you on a personal level? Greatest victory of my life, greatest night of my life, greatest experience of my life. I was prepared to deal with uh, massive depression after that because, you know, I thought, well, this is, this is the one thing that I wanted more than anything else in my entire life was to play with James Brown. And even as a younger person, I knew what that meant because I knew with James Brown came a lot of drama. And I was okay with that. Anything you want that badly, you got to take the punches. You got to take what's given to you. And if you want it that bad, you'll stick with it, you know, and I wanted it that bad. So the whole drama with James Brown, you know, it's like, it didn't feel good, no pun intended, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I stuck with it. I'm thankful you did. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.